So glad that you're with us on this Good Friday. We hope you come back to hear the rest of the story on Resurrection Easter Sunday. We'll be meeting back here at 1030, our usual time, right here at Miami Lakes Middle School as we celebrate our risen Savior. But tonight is Good Friday. And we want to acknowledge what Christ has done for us on the cross. And to do that, we're going to turn to Matthew chapter 27 this evening for a Good Friday service. We're going to be looking at verses 45 through 54. Matthew 27. And the title of tonight's message is Forsaken for Me. Taken from this first gospel, chapter 27. What a quote historian, church historian Bruce Shelley. Christianity is the only major religion to have as its central event the humiliation of its God. Church, it's that truth tonight. It's that very truth that sets Christianity apart from every other faith system. But do you find that when you step back just a little odd that Christians would celebrate the shameful execution of its God on a cross? Do you find it a little odd that Christianity has chosen the cruelest and most shameful means of execution known to mankind as its defining emblem? Do you find it just a little odd that of all the days of the year that Christians have historically called this day good, i.e. Good Friday? If you're not a Christian here this evening, first of all, I'm so glad that you're here. But I suspect you find that not just a little odd, but really odd. In fact, the Bible says if you're not a believer, what we're talking about tonight is utter foolishness. But if you are a Christian here this evening, oh, it's a different story. For the humiliation of our God turns out to be the very power of God to save us from the very consequence of our sin and never-ending shame. Jesus bore our sin and shame on the cross For on the cross, he was rejected. He was abandoned. He was forsaken. So that we, church, would never be forsaken. With that in mind, let's now read our text for this evening, starting with Matthew 27, verse 45 through 54. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling for Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. 
and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the Son of God. Jesus was forsaken by God, church. Jesus, the Son of God, was forsaken by God the Father. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Of all the words ever spoken, there has never, ever been uttered a sentence more full of anguish than this cry on the cross. In verse 45, which you just read, church speaks to that anguish, not just in words, but in picture form as well. It gives us a visual of what was happening on that day. We read in verse 45. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. From the sixth hour, that would be about noon. The Jewish day began at sunup. From about noon to the ninth hour to about 3 p.m., there was darkness. The hour of Christ's crucifixion had come. The reason the Son of Man, the Son of God, Jesus, had come to earth, had arrived. And it was greeted and preceded by utter darkness. Complete darkness. Deafening darkness. Jesus, the light of the world, was cloaked in darkness. Forsaken by the God, his Father, who had put him there. Church, this darkness was no solar eclipse that could be explained by astronomy. Unlike the solar eclipse of last year, August 21st, when droves of people drove to South Carolina or Oregon with their eclipse sunglasses. No, this was no party. This was Passover. And Passover takes place, and only takes place on a full moon. A solar eclipse can only take place on a new moon. No, church, this darkness was a supernatural act of God. And the only explanation is that it was God's own divine judgment and wrath. God's foretold wrath for humanity's sinful rebellion had been suspended no more. After six agonizing, lonely hours of hanging upon a cross, Christ broke that deafening silence and he cried into the darkness, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In the book of Matthew and Mark, these are the only words of Christ recorded. What are we to make of these words, church? Was Jesus surprised at what had happened? Was he confused in his humanity regarding the anguish and the isolation he had encountered on that cross? You know what? We're not left with that conclusion. Only hours earlier in that Garden of Gethsemane, 
Jesus prayed as he sweat tears of blood these very words in Matthew 26, 39. My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Christ knew exactly what he was doing and what was being asked of him by the Father. He was being asked to drink the very cup of God's wrath, the very storm around him that was now within him, that he was experiencing as he hung on that cross. He was asked to drive into the center of that storm, a storm that had been brewing not for hours, not for days, but for a millennia. And God the Father appointed Christ as that lightning rod upon which God's wrath would strike. To be that lightning rod meant that he would hang on the executioner's cross on a barren hill called Golgotha, meaning a place of a skull. Jesus hung there willingly, submissively, and he did it is our substitute, bearing the punishment for our sin. And that leads to point two. Jesus was forsaken because of your sin. We are culpable. We are guilty. It wasn't just the Romans who executed Jesus or the Jews who falsely accused Jesus in a series of sham trials and had him put to death. It was each and every one of us who have ever sinned against a holy and righteous God. That includes each and every one of us here. 2 Corinthians 5.21 puts it this way. We're going to put it on the screen. He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us. Let's walk through the, the first two lines there. 2 Corinthians 5.21. He, God the Father, made the one Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, God in the flesh, who did not know sin, who was perfect, who was holy, who was completely pleasing to God the Father. And he made him, what? To be sin. That is to take our sin upon himself, to take the curse of sin, as if he had actually sinned. And notice those last two words. He did it for us as our substitute, as our penal substitution. He did it in our place as the bearer of your sin and my sin. And in becoming our sin bearer, Jesus was cut off. He was separated from God. It's what sin does, church. Sin is a rebellion against God. It's a rejection of God in our lives. It cuts us off from a holy God and it kills us. It was no different for Jesus who bore our sin, who became sin in our place. Think about it for a moment. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, had only known perfect fellowship with the Father. For all eternity, all he'd ever known was complete and perfect communion with his Father. All he'd ever known 
was the unqualified approbation and commendation of the Father. That very approval, that thundered down at his baptism. And if you recall, on the Mount of Transfiguration. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Now, on the cross. At a time when it seemed like Jesus needed the Father's testimony and the Father's approval the most, God the Father was silent. And Jesus was cursed, cut off, forsaken. And so we read in verse 46 that Jesus cried out, how? With a loud voice. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But Jesus didn't cry that in pain and anguish to be heard by God the Father as if God the Father owed him pity or an explanation. No, I believe he cried that prayer. He cried that cry for you, for me, and for every bystander. Are you listening this evening? God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. Why did he do it? Let's continue on the last half at 2 Corinthians 5, 21. So that we might become the righteousness of God in him. In other words, he did it that we might be made whole, that we might be forgiven and made right with our holy God. He did that that we might be made acceptable and pleasing to God. He did it that we would never, ever be forsaken by God. Point three, Jesus was forsaken so that you will never be forsaken. All that we read in the following verses, 51 to 54, simply serve as an exclamation point to this very fact. All the wild stuff we read about. What was that? The temple curtain which separated man from the Holy of Holies, God's very presence, was torn in two. A temple curtain which reportedly was 60 feet long, at least the length or width of this auditorium. A curtain that was 30 feet tall, taller than the ceiling before us. A curtain that was the width or thickness of the palm of a man. It's reported that this curtain took 300 men to lift when it was wet. And upon Christ's last breath, it snapped. It tore in two from top to bottom. Church, this was a supernatural act of God, signifying that through Christ's death, sinners now have access to God. For all those who place their saving faith in Jesus, we will never be forbidden from his presence because of our sin if we're in Christ Jesus. We will never, ever be turned away by God. We will never be forsaken. Yesteryear's sins, yesterday's sins, today's sins, tomorrow's sins will not bar us from coming to God. And as amazing as that is, the narrative doesn't stop there. We read the earth shook, the rocks split, and the tombs were open, and the dead saints were brought back to life. What is going on? 
Apparently, Matthew is collapsing time now, and he's speaking of the resurrection that follows Christ's own resurrection, spoken about in verse 53. It's like Matthew can't wait to get to Easter and to tell us the death of death has begun. Not only will God not forsake us in life, but he will not forsake us in death. We need not fear death. We as Christians can peer at the grave. We can look six feet under and say, you have no hold on me any longer. Church, that's what this means. I will not be forsaken in life. I will not be forsaken in death. Church, do you believe that? Do you really believe that? Do you know the cry of Jesus that we've read? Comes from Psalm 22, verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was the cry of King David. He knew what it was like to feel abandoned. David knew what it was like to have enemies from without, but also enemies from within. David knew what it was to be mocked for his faith. He knew shame. But in his shame and suffering, he clung to this one hope, Psalm 22, verse 5, and it's this. Those who trust in him will never be put to shame. Are you clinging to that hope this evening? Please listen, church. Persistent shame for past sin, forgiven past sin that you have repented of is hard to shake. My family knows this truth up close and personal. And we've learned a lot about shame these past several years. For those who don't know, my wife was adopted and we've adopted a child as well of our own. Adoption is a beautiful, gracious, gracious act in which we image God by choosing an orphan, placing our affection on that child and bringing him or her into our family. It's a picture of the gospel. But you know what? That's not how most orphans who are adopted see it. The question that often goes through their mind is this. Why was I given up? Why was I abandoned in the first place? Whether verbalized or not, there is often a persistent feeling of shame, a feeling that I must be unworthy. Shame says there is something fundamentally wrong with me and I will never, ever be fully accepted. Shame says in essence, I deserve to be forsaken. As a family, we've come to realize just how powerful the fear of separation and abandonment can be. The fear of being forsaken. This shame can manifest itself in a variety of ways. As Al did so well last week as he unpacked Psalm 25. Shame can result in redoubling our efforts to somehow try to win God's approval and favor. Somehow that I may be worthy of him. 
but that impacted me last week. And as I prayed, I felt like, you know what? I think God has more for us on the shame piece. Because that indeed is one way that shame manifests itself. But church, there's another way as well. Shame can also take a different tact. Instead of redoubling our efforts to win approval, we simply reject those whose approval we most desire, those whose approval we most crave. Maybe you've done it in a relationship. Maybe you've done it with your very own parents. Maybe you've done it with God as well. Shame says, I will reject you before you reject me. It's another form of control. Shame, as Al said well last week, does not trust. Shame cannot hope. Why? It's too vulnerable. It's too risky. To trust and to risk rejection is just too painful to bear. So here's the irony. The irony is that shame attempts to spurn its savior. Shame attempts to hurt its healer, all in the name of self-protection. Church, if you are a Christian, you have been adopted into the family of Christ. And you're not immune to sin, are you? We're not immune to the shame that can come with it. Even though we know we're forgiven, even though we've repented of that sin, we can still be haunted we can still be covered by that same shame. Christ knows your shame. He bore your sin. He took your wrath and he experienced the rejection that you may so fear. Why? So you wouldn't have to. He did it for you. I think we know, those who have been well-churched, that God, that Christ, is your sin substitute. But I want you to hear this. He's also your shame-bearing substitute as well. Christ, quoting Hebrews 12, 2, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising, scorning its shame. Why? So that whoever believes in him will never be put to shame. You see, shame says, I deserve it. I deserve to be forsaken by God because of my sin. But shame stops there. Shame can go no further. Shame can see no further. But faith goes on, church. Faith goes on to say, but what I deserve is what Christ got at the cross. Therefore, I will never be forsaken. If you've placed your saving faith in Christ this evening, God has cast your sin into the sea of forgetfulness and he has covered all of your shame. He sees you as worthy because of his son, Jesus. If you're here and this is new to you this evening, if you're not a Christian, let the shame of your sin lead you to Christ. Confess your sin and place your faith in Christ who bore your sin and bore your shame on the cross. See Christ's humiliation as your hope 
forgiveness and freedom from the sin and the shame that you carry. Friends, we have a lot of cries here in this life, do we not? How could I have ever done that? Abortion, divorce, law-breaking, regret. Why did this happen to me? Cancer, abuse, miscarriage, abandonment, chronic illness, debilitation, degradation. God, how could you allow this to happen to me, to my child, to my family, to my friend? But Christian, there is one cry. You will never, ever have to cry. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's one cry. You will never have to cry as a Christian church. What does that mean to you? I pray it means your life and your affection and your worship, for he will never ever forsake you. Jesus cried it so you will never have to for all eternity. Jesus was forsaken so that you will never be forsaken in life and in death. Church, that's good news. That's the best of news. That's Good Friday. With that in mind, I'd like to worship team up for one last song in Christ alone. And church, is what we're about to do as we stand and sing this last song. There's some songs, I, I see these as warfare songs. There are songs that we're singing. We're singing it to God, okay? We're also singing it to one another. But you know what? We're singing it to ourselves. These are truths that we are affirming. Despite how we feel at times, despite the combination that can creep in, Despite the shame that can cover us, we are singing a song that we believe to be true and we are affirming it. We're saying, God, help me to believe. And we're singing it boldly. We're singing it in faith. We're singing it as a declaration of what we believe based on what God has revealed in Christ on this Good Friday. We're doing warfare and we're singing loud because we know we have an enemy, the enemy of our soul. And we're saying, no way, we believe. God help me to believe. Let's respond now, shall we? Let's respond in song together, in unison. Let's encourage one another right now.